cutting edge guests, awesome uncensored, jaw-dropping information, plus funny memes, good deeds, and loads of laughter. Kinda have it all. Ladies and gentlemen, if your soul's awake, then welcome, because you're in the right place. If you are looking for groundbreaking nutritional products which revolutionize the way your body operates, you have to check out this cutting-edge, American-made, all-natural wellness brand. Root the Trinity Pack from GetRootNow.com is a game-changer. Let me show you. Zero In is the world's first quantumceutical, an all-natural adaptogenic nootropic which skyrockets your clarity and creativity. Professional athletes have reported over a 40% increase in their performance in only 90 days. Restore is a supplement that completely restores your gut health, optimizes your true brain, helping you tap into quantum consciousness, also known as the God Mind, all together with Clean Slate, which gently wipes out harmful heavy metals from your body, gently evacuating toxins, including graphene oxide. Trinity Pack from Root Altogether helps you increase your performance, longevity, deep sleep, and have a far greater quality of life. Register now at GetRootNow.com to grab your Trinity Pack. Then hit subscribe and save to get $15 back every month. Trinity Pack has also received the gold standard, a worldwide BSCG approval, allowing those in the military to first responders to the NFL, PGA, NBA, FIFA World Cup soccer, and more. Feel assured it is indeed all natural and drug-free. Trinity Pack even comes with a 30-day satisfaction guarantee. So when you grab your Trinity at GetRootNow.com, you can feel good knowing it's endorsed by Tier 1 Special Operations Warriors, to lightworkers, benevolent healthcare heroes, professional athletes, and Olympians detoxing their systems and unleashing their greatest self from across the globe. You can also get rewarded for being part of the Root community. See you there! Welcome back to the Sovereign Soul Show, you divine lions and lionesses. As always, we stand for love, levity, and liberty. And in the edit here, you're going to see the Bling Buddha, our mascot, firing red pills from his nine mil with a Punisher's tattoo over his left breast, symbolizing stand the save the children. And when we go to stand, why I got tripped up in the word is because I had said that any guest I have on the show must be about saving the children overall. And you have the head of Freedom Fighter Nation, probably one of the most prominent faces in the world for Divine Feminine and whom I have said on this show a year ago is the reincarnation of Joan of Arc. Personally, I totally believe it. I feel that intuitively. Lee Dundas, international human rights attorney, literally been fighting for freedom her entire life. Renowned human rights attorney, modern-day abolitionist, fiery public speaker. These are the description on our website, leedundas.com, an award-winning author, back with a brand-new book, and a passionate defender of freedom and civil liberties, a mother, a humanitarian, a wife. Welcome back with your Just Stand Up book. It's an honor, Lee. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for that wonderful and warm introduction, and thanks for having me. I love being on your show. Your uh, your viewers are amazing. The topics you cover are really uh, poignant and topical, and just always an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The topics we always wish that we've never had to actually cover, right? But it, here we are. 
and getting that message out there is so beautiful. So you have basically written this book, the next one, on just stand up. And you have been standing up for people, especially for kids, for your pretty much your entire career, nearly entire career. Do you want to take people through in case they don't know your name and they've woken up in the last few months and welcome to all of you here. And yeah, we have an amazing audience. I'm they're probably cheering right now and rushing over to get their own copy on your website at leadun.com. <laughs> Description is the link below here. We're going to hear about what this entails, why it's important, as well as the warrior mothers like you are standing up for children in the world. Yeah, well, it's uh, like I said, honor to be here. Um, I have always been one of those people who, for better or for worse, is just sort of wired to take up the underdog's cause. Uh, I was an only child, um, always. I've always been very social, but also courtesy of that only child background, uh, pretty content to do my own thing, march to my own drummer. Uh, and really, you know, at at times in my life, as I'm sure you felt too, and many of your audience, it, it can be a blessing and a curse. But uh, the last few years has made evident that on balance, it's a blessing to be able to blaze your own path, think for yourself, not, uh, not be overly cowed when authority comes calling uh, and telling you something that's not true. And, and I've just, I've just been wired like that. I mean, from the time I was little, if somebody was picking on a little kid, you know, I would be the one random dude out there or dudette saying, Hey, that's not cool. Or don't do that. Or, you know, even as a teenager, if a store was trying to put one over on me and my friends, I was like, that's not what the sign says. You know, that, that's false advertising. And I hadn't even been to law school yet. Didn't really know the law in California on it, but it was just always sort of wired to navigate toward truth and, and rightful, righteous ends. So um, in in law school, which came earlier to my life than, than the most, I actually started college when I was 14. I uh, got a wild bee in my bonnet uh, when I was a junior in college. I was about 17 at the time. Thought, you know, I really want to graduate when all my friends who are a little bit older are graduating high school. And I want to graduate from college. So I'm just going to take 32 units in one quarter. We were on the quarter system uh, at my college. So I took a year's worth of credits <laughs> in a quarter, which I do not recommend. And all of a sudden, I was I was bingo. I was done with law school, or uh, done with college, rather, at 17. And uh, I wanted to be a dolphin trainer, but it wasn't paying very well at the time. And uh, I let I let the more rational voices in my universe, including my mother uh, and, and various teachers say, you know, you're really good at arguing. <laughs> Maybe you should make that a career and pick targets other than us. <laughs> so so I applied to law schools. I applied everywhere. I, I applied to Colorado, where I know your fiance uh, is living right now. I applied to Hawaii, where they just had the fires. And I applied to Yale and Stanford, you, you name it, because I was young and I didn't didn't know if they were going to laugh my application out the door or say yes with a gold stamp, right? And uh, most of them said yes. Yale said yes. Uh, all the other biggies said yes. I didn't apply to Harvard. I thought Harvard was sexist in their hiring and tenuring of professors. Uh, and I didn't want to go to a school that I thought was behaving that way because I figured I would be fighting the establishment the whole time I was there. And I was probably right. Um, and then I had a little family drama going on that necessitated I stay in Southern California. So I ended up, despite getting into Yale and, and Bolt, which was Berkeley's law school, which was, they were ranked number one and number two that year. This was 1990, 91. I ended up going to SC, still a very creditable school. Uh, I came out a few years later and when I could finally legally go to a bar and, and have a drink legally at the age of 21, I was also passing the state bar. And, uh, and then I went to a big firm. I wanted 
I wanted to go to the DA's office in LA. I had done an internship there my last year of law school. Uh, they said, you know, you're one of the brightest stars we've ever seen. You can stand on your feet and argue like nobody's business. You suck at math, but we're the DA's office, not an accounting firm. <laughs> so <laughs> we know you're bad at math. We don't care. You, you got a silver tongue. Come, 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 come be a sex crimes prosecutor like you see on, you know, uh, Olivia Benson kind of law and order stuff. And uh, I was a little too close to my own baggage at the time to say yes. I figured if I spent all day uh, representing little kids who were raped and women who were raped, that I would be emotionally drained and I wouldn't have anything left in my gas tank to give for my future family. So with a lot of regret and second thoughts, I took a pass and I went to a very large law firm in Newport Beach that was national. And then I moved to an international law firm and I represented heartless, soulless. Actually, that's not true. A lot of my corporations were were run by very nice people, but they were Leviathan. I mean, they were the 800 pound gorillas on the block and it was very good training. And I don't regret it from the sense of it gave me the skill set I have now, which is fearsome indeed. Um, but it just, it bleeds you dry and it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I thought I wanted to go work for a corporation because if I failed, I wouldn't be letting a person down. I would be letting a fictional fictional entity down. But what I rapidly found is the lack of people, the lack of of personal wrong, the the inability to throw myself as an advocate for somebody who was individually wronged, uh, left for a very dry, sort of boring experience. Um, and so I, I suffered there for a really long time. And then I did the mom thing for a little while. And then thank God, uh, my husband and I sold his chiropractic uh, wellness office uh, down by Huntington Beach in 2013. And we decided to travel in Australia and, and uh, Australasia, uh, Southeast uh, Asia. And I got bored, reached out to a sex trafficking nonprofit, some orphanages, Actually, I reached out to about a few hundred, all of whom laughed at the white woman from Cali who wanted to be a do-getter. But finally, somebody said, uh, meet us in Da Nang, Vietnam on May 23rd, if you can cut it, if you can swing it. And we're going to have a meeting with the prime minister on sex trafficking, and we'd be honored to have you be in attendance. So I yanked my family out of New Zealand where we were where we were homeschooling my daughter and seeing the sights. And we landed in Da Nang, Vietnam on May 23rd. I took a meeting with the Mucky Mucks in the Vietnamese government and this new group that was an anti-sex slavery NGO that was based in Newport Beach, of all things, right in my backyard here, and I came home with a job as a general counsel for an anti-sex slavery nonprofit, which sounds sexy, but I ended up moving to Thailand part-time, uh, half of every month and running undercover former Navy SEAL type guys into the brothels in Southeast Asia to bust them. So the people who have seen Sound of Freedom, which yeah. is more or less the icing on the cake to the extremely dark, dark, dark evil. Yep. That's their, you not only, they could write a movie around you and your experience, you could do a trilogy or even more. And in addition to that, where I'm going with this is you have also lived in the communities where the bombs were going off, roadside bombs, and they were bombing the brothels on average 300 days a year. 330. 330 days yeah. a year. These bombs are going off in yeah. Thailand, 
Cambodia border in this town and you are yeah. there to help even the law enforcement who is complicit in covering it up, which we've people are now aware, North America, trafficking out of the White House just on Thursday last week. It was said that Obama is directly tied to Epstein. Epstein brokered kids for Obama and child sex trafficking was done right out of the White House. Yeah. Via Obama. So people are aware of this now. You are putting your life on the line, though, of doing this in a town where terrorist groups are trying to take you out and literally blow up brothels. Yeah, it is. It is unfathomable uh, unfathomable the width breadth and depth and and scope of the issue you're absolutely right it goes not just in our country i mean this is not a u.s issue solely obviously it's a and for those of you who don't know i i know most of your listeners are very savvy but for the odd viewer that isn't up to speed current statistics on human trafficking worldwide is that we've got 150 billion dollar a year industry 40 million with an M, 40 million people currently enslaved, 90% of whom, according to various uh, reporting entities, are female, and 89% of those are underage. So what you're, and, and, and involves sexual servitude. So when you shake that 40 million people, which is, by the way, the population of California right now where I'm sitting, that's, to give you a frame of reference, that is Every single person in California waking up with their hands handcuffed to a bed, being raped seven, eight times, 10 times a night for profit. But the vast majority are women or more to the point girls and they're underage. And uh, it's a worldwide problem. It exists in the U.S. It goes to the various highest regions of our government, as you've so aptly noted. Lynn Wood was calling that out a few years ago. He was being laughed at at the time, but he was really ahead of the curve. And all of us who are in the know were going, no, no, no. It does go all the way up to the highest realms of not just our government, but every government. And it's a problem because government is supposed to exist to protect you, uh, as are your parents. And what you see, particularly in the third world countries that I'm working in, is those who are supposed to be protecting people are the ones perpetrating against them. And when your parent is the one selling you to a brothel, and when the cop on the street is the one you would normally pull on the on the coattails of and say, rescue me, and he's actually, he's got two jobs. He works nine to five for his policeman job, but that doesn't pay his bills. That doesn't give him enough money to make sure that his kid can go to private school in New Zealand instead of, you know, being sold into a brothel. How does he get out of that fix? Well, at 5 p.m., he goes down the street and he clocks into a second job where he's the muscle for a brothel. Yep. So is that guy ever going to arrest the brothel owner uh, as part of his day job? Hell to the no, he's not, because that guy, the brothel owner, is signing his moonlight paycheck, and he uses that extra money to put his kid in private school so he doesn't have to traffic her. So it is a real, real problem in every country of the world, but especially in the third world countries, because as much as we like to throw stones at our at our cops here and our military, um, I, I'm not one of them. All you have to do is live for one day in one of these third world communist countries that I rolled in and you come back home and you go, yeah, America's got its problems, but <laughs> it ain't a perfect world, but it is a far sight better than some of these third world countries because there's just, there's no safety net when you've been trafficked. There's no safety net if your home is robbed and, uh, and the, and the bombs going off, that's, 
that's a separate issue. The the town I work in is in the far south of Thailand. It's sort of a boot-shaped country, kind of like Italy. And way down along the southern border, long, skinny country, you got, you know, China at the north. You follow Thailand down and way along the southern border, there's a river that divides Thailand from Malaysia. And the brothel town I do the most, some of the most work in over there is called Sungai Kalak. And it sits on that border. And across the river on the Malay side, it's all Islamic country. And not just, the Islamic religion is a beautiful religion, like Christianity, like Catholicism, like Buddhism. I, I have nothing bad to say about any of these religions, and I am a Christian. But radical jihadi Islamic terror training camps are different from Ma and Pa in the Mideast who are just praying to Mecca four times a day with their kids. And that is what we find on that border. So right across the river from the 140 child brothels in this child brothel town I work in are these radical Islamic jihadi terror camps. And for their part, they teach their people how to deploy the bombs by using the girls and the brothels as bombing practice. So the very first year I was working there in 2013, started doing work summer, fall of 2013, and then all the way into the fall of 2014. Uh, I think we had about, the, the count that year was 330 bombs went off that year, which is one a day. And what it looks like, I don't, uh, the, the photo you see up here with the girl with the blurred out face and me, that was actually taken in one of those brothels in that town in the fall of 2013. I'll get back to her in a second. But, you know, in between that trip and the next trip I took, this is what happened to, to the hotels come brothels that I was staying at. Um, well, you got, you got to realize that once you get to these brothel towns, there are no hotels. They may say the word hotel, but 100% of the inside of the building is a brothel. And so when you get there, you're staying in these brothels with these girls. And you walk out into the hallway, and there's rodents that are bigger than a house cat in California. Um, you know, huge rats, huge roaches. <laughs> the roaches are the size of small rodents. <laughs> the cats are the size of, or sorry, the, the rodents are the size of cats. <laughs> and you walk down the, the hallways and it's just Asian man after Asian man after Asian man standing with his arm against the threshold and got a little loincloth towel around his waist. And he's got, you know, under his arm, armpit, one or two 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, you know, uh, and that's his thats his weekend. He's got one or two or three wives. The radical Islamic uh, culture in that region has major wives and minor wives. So it's like Mormonism where they're uh, polygamous. They have multiple wives, poly, polygynous, not polyandrous. And um, men, one man, multiple wives. But that's still not enough. And they, uh, for pleasure, they pool their resources and they go in. If they can't afford a girl, they'll they'll get their buddies to to all throw in, if you will, and they'll take turns all weekend with the girl, and then they'll go do their holy day and rinse, wash, repeat the next week. We've been fighting against child sex slavery, child trafficking. You know, that's pretty much what you're known for. In addition to helping whistleblowers come forward. You know, it's a prominence in the truther movement as they classify it since the pandemic. We, you know, yourself and Tom Renz bringing forth the whistleblowers in the DOD with the vaccine genocide under the DMED database as well. And, and you know, moonlighting, per, perhaps I would say, you know, on children's self-defense with Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s amazing organization. 
in with just stand up which the subtitle of it too i think is just powerful to wake people up is my fight for freedom from the brothels of asia to the streets of america why did you choose that as the subtitle for just stands up where is it that you see america and then the world now what do you feel that a title of your book just stands up what does it signify what does it mean for people it's you know it's it's really funny um the title was suggested to me by my speaker agent <laughs> finally broke down and got myself an agent because <laughs> for three and a half years i've been speaking for free like everybody else and and uh i, I don't know how many people we all know that could have gone since march 14th of 2020 with no paycheck uh, like any good drowning woman or man i dragged my husband into the fight with me and neither of us uh, you know, we, we used to have a, a business like most people do, um, and neither of us have had a paid income in almost three and a half years now. But I finally got a speaker's agent. I thought, well, you know, they're supposed to get you a little money for speaking. I guess I'm doing a piss poor job about myself. Let me get an agent. So really nice guy. He's actually from your neck of the woods. He's from Canada um, and uh, living. He, he like you fled at the beginning of all the crazy. And uh, he's living down in the Caribbean somewhere now. And he hadn't even read the whole thing. He just read one or two of the chapters where I talked about, um, I talked about a girl, remind me to come back to it. I talked about a girl who, uh, they put a gun to her temple uh, in, a, in a Burmese, Thai Burmese trading, sex slave trading camp. And she ended up not being executed through some very clever things she did that I think, uh, that I, I think there's a lesson there. So I said in that chapter and one or two of the other more, to, more compelling ones, and he goes, you know, I think you should just call your book Just Stand Up. And I thought, yeah, that's not, that's not bad for the, the main title. And and I decided to do that. And I hadn't reread my book recently. I actually wrote it back in October last year. This was March. And uh, and then I reread it to edit it. And I'll be darned if that wasn't a routine theme that I hadn't even noticed that came up over and over and over again in so many of the chapters, even the ones where I was pissed off at my law firm because they were screwing with the secretaries and buying the partners new computers, but not the secretaries. And this was in the 90s, right? When the partners, half the partners were old men who didn't even know where the on off switch on their computer was. And I was like, how dare you do that? The secretaries are going blind working on IBM dinosaur equipment out there, you know, first generation Apple computers. <laughs> you guys are buying yourself the swanky new ones and they're big paperweights on your desks. And and just over and over, there was this theme of little Lee Dundas from the time I was in sixth grade, actually from the time I was three, my parents had a not great marriage and uh, they used to go at it something fierce. And and I can remember cowering in my closet, listening, you know, at midnight to the sounds coming through the wall. And we had, we were in a 1929 house. There were these little skeleton key locks that you could put your eye up to and, and watching shit fly, if you will. And then being like, I just can't take it anymore. And I just burst into the room and be like, ew, ew, ew. <laughs> which went over like a lead balloon with, with the person who was the aggressor in the situation. And, uh, but I just could never hold my tongue. And um, it was a very, very apt title in the main. And then I thought, well, what? That's not enough. I need to I need to explain what the book is about. And it was such a breach. You know, there's such a, a chasm between the work I was doing in Asia, or so I thought, and the work I'd been doing here. But I kind of wanted to talk about both. And then I thought, well, it's a journey. Let me Let me just say from the brothels of Asia to the streets of America. And again, after the title, the subtitle came to me, 
I realized how accurate it, it really was because as you point out so so insightfully, all of the lessons that I was busy learning for the last 10 years in Asia, for the most part, were 100% transferable skill sets to what has started to occur here in America over the last three years. So from the jump, just like you, I knew what was up, Brad. I was It was April, I mean, and I was going up to the Sacramento Capitol and wagging my finger and screaming at our governor and being like, this is crazy. And I, I literally stood on the West Steps first rally. So we were a few weeks in at this point. I mean, maybe one week past the two week to flatten the curb time frame. And I literally said, we are on a bullet train to Auschwitz if we do not self-correct. And even the people in the audience afterward who were total truthers were like, I was a little bit hyperbolically, like, <laughs> you know, a little bit, I was, you know, I was a, a, bit, a bit much, you know, and I was like, yeah, I don't think so. But most of America has not lived in communist countries. Yep. And what you rapidly realize when you work in a communist country, when you go to these communist countries, when you start realizing how they roll, these, these communist countries are universally poor. They've all experienced communist overthrows, whether violent ones like Cambodia underwent in the 1970s during their you know, Pol Pot overthrow and genocide, or more subtle ones where they just gently transition into, into communism. But they've all experienced it. And censorship is huge. I mean, it is just it is just absolutely off the hook. That's the first thing they do is they come in and they say, you can't speak out. You can't speak out against the government. You can't disagree with anybody. We're not going to give you airtime. You're going to be locked up if you say boo, if you say the wrong thing, if you don't, you know, keep lockstep with the with whatever the narrative is at that point. And Hitler started gently enough. You know, it was kind of like, let's set up a seven department PR system in the 1930s that talked about everything from rallies to radio stations to cabaret and singing to schools and press. I mean, his was a very full fledged PR censorship machine. Um, and it and then it got worse and worse. It wasn't just, hey, the arts can no longer disagree. It was you're no longer allowed to listen to the BBC. Oh, we're going to hand out free loudspeakers and free radios on our PR minister's birthday, Joseph Goebbels' birthday. Guys, I don't care if your government is communist or the U.S. They don't do stuff for free for no reason. Okay, They weren't trying to be nice to the nice Germans. They were trying to brainwash them 24-7. And radio was a new, wonderful technology. And they could just drown public factories, public squares, public schools with nonstop communist chatter. And then if you had your little personal radio in your house, they could just continue it 24-7. Sound familiar? Sound like the mainstream media 24-7 now? That's what he was doing. And then pretty soon it was, hey, and you can't listen to the BBC on those radios. And if you do, we can jail you. And then by the end of the Holocaust, it was, if you so much as listen to God, not even, not even including the Brad Wozniaks of the world who are purveying real truth, not even including the BBC who's trying to tell the real truth about what's going on with World War II. But if you so much as listen to the BBC across country lines, you will be put to death. That is a very, very effective censorship tool. And when you lose the right to control your own communication channel, you no longer can get your truth out. Holocaust never would have happened if MSNBC and CNN had been able to get up in there in, in Auschwitz, in the, in the ovens with rolling video and rolling audio. Never would have happened. 
the Jews could not get their story out because of the censorship machine that came to town. And so when we started seeing that we weren't, and, and the other thing that, that Nazi Germany did, if your people don't know this, they closed non-essential businesses. Google it right now. You don't even need to go to DuckDuckGo. Type into Google, Google, mainstream Google. Type in, what did Hitler do? Non-essential businesses, Nazi Germany. And you'll get paragraph after paragraph of the fact that that man closed anything he considered to be non-essential. And then he went through and he stripped out law enforcement because he wanted henchmen. He wanted goons. He wanted an SS. He wanted Heil Hitler. He didn't want free speaking, free thinking uh, Jewish police chiefs in power. And if you, and he pulled down statues, they rewrote history books. They started controlling the curricula. And if you look around and see what's happening in America today, it was lockstep page for page, the same thing they did in Nazi Germany and the same thing they did in every communist overthrow. It doesn't matter whether it's a fascist or communist, right or left, totalitarianism that's coming to town. They employ the same methods. And we are in the midst of that. Khrushchev said in the 50s, I believe, it might have been early 60s, Khrushchev said, I will take America without firing a single shot. I will destroy her from within. And he has. They read the communists read into our congressional record in 1963, I think in October, 45 communist goals they had. Number one, recognize Red China. Number two, permit free trade among any communist uh, countries. Number three, take over the schools to, quote, use them as transmission belts for the purveying of socialist and communist propaganda. Rip down statues, normalize uh, abortions, normalize sexual perversion, uh, encourage divorce, get rid of prayer in the school system by calling it a violation of, of church and state, uh, the separation of church and state. Call the founding fathers in the Constitution old fuddy-duddy documents that no longer have relevance. Quit being uh, faithful to them. I mean, you can just go through these 45 goals. Check them off yourself. Don't don't. Don't listen to me. I don't want you listening to me any more than you listen to, to, to Nazis or, you know, our new Nazis, right? The governors and, and uh, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates. Do the math yourself and you will rapidly realize they are more than halfway through their communist goals. Yeah, right through lockstep, as you said. And that's part of the plan, actually. They name this plan lockstep for anybody who's new or hasn't heard that term before. Right. And it's wonderful because there are so many more people coming onto the Rumble channel, as you mentioned, the audience. So some of this we have to rehash for the new people. And the other ones are like, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're bang on, you know, and it's about just standing up. Right. You can see the difference that's made when people stand up, whether it's a Canadian Freedom Convoy, even the American Freedom Convoy. You helped create and then lead and go through some of the deepest, darkest parts of America, Albuquerque, New Mexico, as you covered on our, one of our last shows. Lee, and then everybody else too. And this comes on the heels, our show right after I've had Pastor Pavlowski and Arthur Pavlowski, and then three shows, two with him and his son, Nathaniel. And we just did one with uh, him and Nathaniel and Michael Jaco and um, Josh Alexander leading the youth movement in Canada of just standing up for the Million Man March, right? And what we're attempting to do is why don't we make it the billion person march around the world? Everybody around the world just stands up for 24 hours on September 20th and literally to bring the system to its knees, to cripple the system and also to call out the names of those who are perpetrating crimes against humanity at every level, whether it's from the school, the school board, the school trustees, to the medical staff, the doctors, the nurses, and the administrators perpetrating vaccine genocide, as well as mutilating children, you know, by cutting off 
little girls' breasts and other things with the boys too, all across the board to the levels and the ranks of government. For the good military, we know there's a bad military. For the good law enforcement, we know there's bad puppets within that. So we call them all out and bring the system to its knees by standing up, which I believe, again, is so aptly named. Your book just stands up. Again, the link's right down below here and scrolling across the screen. Everybody can go right to LeeDundas.com and you go to book, you can get it, or you can also go to Freedom Fighter Nation and join that as well and just stand it's really key. So the, the girl in Burma, young teenage girl who spoke her way out of execution with a gun to her head. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was it was a it was a life changing day. The day she shared her story with me, we were I'd been tasked with our uh, opening of our Southeast Asia office in Thailand and Bangkok. And we were working with an intermediary, a friend of the company who was a native Thai gentleman, nice guy. And uh, we were sharing space with his offices while we were attempting to get our, our, our own set up. And I showed back up, I think it was October, November. It was literally almost a decade ago to the to the day. And he said, hey, I, I hope you don't mind. Um, I hired you a, a secretary to, for the few weeks you're going to be here and getting things set up. I'm like, mind? Like, thank you. <laughs> One last thing I have to worry about is somebody to delegate stuff of the, the paperwork to, right? And, and uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, she's, uh, she's going to be a great secretary and, and asset. And he said it really kind of in passing. And I said, what? And he said, uh, asset. And I go, Like she's going to be an asset to our business or like, are you talking about like an Intel asset I'm going to deploy in the field? And he goes, the latter. And I'm like, so confused, right, Brad, at this point, because, you know, I've been interviewing these former Navy SEAL SWAT guys and they're all, you know, they're, they're Michael Jacobs. They're like six, five and their shoulders don't even fit in your screen when you're interviewing them. And, and they've run, you know, military, special ops, law enforcement, you know, you know, they can shoot you right-handed, left-handed, like lights off. And, and they're, they're big burly dudes. I mean, those are your, those are your guys that you send into brothels and the Thai secretaries are like 90 pounds. They're five foot, nothing dripping wet. Like I could pick one up with my right hand. Like I'm a big chick. Right. And I'm just in my mind, like I'm trying to reconcile Navy SEAL Intel asset and Thai secretary into one person's body. And I, I, I must've looked really confused because <laughs> our, our buddy there, the, the Thai guy that was helping us looks at me and he goes, he pats me on the shoulder. He goes, I'll just let her tell you her story in time. And I go, okay. So a few days in, she wanders into my office. We're in a high rise in Bangkok, air conditioned sky, skyscraper building. And she goes, hey, I uh, I got your computer talking to your printer. And I said, oh, thank God. Like, there's nothing worse than having everything on your screen and not being able to print stuff out that you need. We were we were executing contracts to work with the non-corrupt uh, Thai military and Thai law enforcement to go do raids on brothels with their permission. So we needed contracts in place and they couldn't just be all, you know, this was sort of, you got to sign on the dotted line, not just e-sign it, right? So she tells me the printer's working. I'm like happier than a lark. And she kind of makes like she's going to leave my office, but she doesn't actually leave. She sort of stands in front of my desk and she's rearranging like, you know, tchotchkes on my desk. And I just waited. I had done enough work with uh, rape survivors when I was at the LADA's office and in other facets of my life that I could tell she had some sort of a story. I didn't know what, you know, that she was going to tell me, but there's just a wait, you know, that you can you can feel. And for those of you who don't know, 
there is an electromagnetic field that your heart gives off that is bigger than the room I'm in. It's it's like 10 feet or more. So, you know, when you walk into a room and something feels weird or you feel nervous all of a sudden for no reason or you feel sad for no reason, um, that's a signature. That's other people's signature electrical stamp that their heart put out into the universe in the room that your heart is resonating onto the same frequency of, even though you don't understand the science of it and your left brain cannot really describe it to you very well. So there I am and the room is just getting cold and dark, but she hasn't said anything yet, but I can feel it. So I just, I sat there quietly and I, I gestured to my chair. So she took a seat and she was sitting like a bird on a wire. I mean, just perched on the edge of this chair. She wasn't even scooted all the way back. And she said, so the reason I speak fluent English and fluent Thai is because I am the product of what happens when Australian or American men come to my country and uh, marry a Thai woman. So my dad was a mean Australian drunk and he married my mom, who's a tiny Thai woman. And I grew up speaking fluent English and Thai. And uh, when my father would get drunk, he would just beat the living, you know what, out of my mom. And uh, one day when I was 11 or 12, I they were going at it. And I decided I was going to leave my hut, and she lived in rural Thailand at the time, and take a walk down our dirt road. And there was a bus bench a mile away, and I was just going to sit on the bench and get some space. So she's sitting there and minding her own business, preteen, and a group of men in the back of a pickup truck come screaming to a stop right in front of the bench, and three or four Thai men jump out of the back of the bed of the truck, wrestle her to the ground, and shove a needle into her arm. And she said, I don't know what they had in the needle, but it must have been some heavy duty narcotic because when I woke up, I'd been out cold. And when I woke up, I was on the Thai Burmese, it's now Myanmar, um, but the Thailand Burmese border. And I was in a slave trading camp. And she went on to describe what that was. She said, basically, it's like what you see in movies from America in the 17, 1800s, where they'd go out from the, pl the plantation owner would go out to the to the fields and there'd be a bazaar and you'd say, I want that black man for, to work in my fields and his wife to be, you know, my wet nurse or whatever. I mean, but it's not that it's where all the brothel owners come the world over from around the world to buy their, their lot, their allotment of sex slaves of young girls from Thailand, from Japan, from Australia, from America, from, you know, everywhere from Switzerland and so she woke up, though it brought her out of her stupor, was a two-year-old baby next to her was crying, and the guards got tired of the crying. Baby wouldn't stop crying, so they just shot it. And she was sleeping next to the baby. So her, she woke up to her ears ringing and realized, holy heck, this is where I've landed, right? This is where I am. So one day for sport, the Thai guards or the Burmese guards, whatever they were, uh, decided they were going to line up all the sex slaves in the camp. And there were girls there from literally babies, no lower end on this, zero all the way up to, to her age, 12 or 13. They don't they don't want much want product over 13. If you're a 16-year-old Thai girl, you're too old, basically. So the, the sweet spot is zero to 12 or 13. So there she is. They've lined them all up and the guards are bored and they're just going down the line killing girls, putting a gun to a temple and shooting. And she's telling me this sitting on the edge of her chair in my office in Bangkok. And I'm just, I'm mute. I mean, I'm dumbstruck, awestruck, 
just can't even cat canary got my cat canary whatever voice whatever that saying is i'm just you know my eyebrows are pinned to my to my scalp i'm just in utter shock um but trying to not look horrified because i didn't want to scare her into into shutting down and so i just nodded and she was pissed she was so freaking pissed she was as pissed off as i get in the most viral rants you've ever seen me go off on a school board on and she said and these girls, when the men would get to them and they'd, they'd pull their gun out of their hip and they'd lay the, the gun on their temple, they would drop to their knees and they would beg for their life. And she almost spit when she was saying it. She was so disgusted. And then, and then she stopped. And I mean, she, she, she did mention, she goes, to no avail, because then they just get shot anyway. I was like, wow. And then she stopped talking. And I looked at her and I said, so what did you do when the guards got to you? I'll never forget. She looked at me and she wasn't scared anymore. She wasn't sitting like a bird on the edge of her chair. She said, I stood up and I reached out my hand and I said, give me that thing gun. I don't want to live like this anymore. I'll shoot myself. And the owner of the camp was walking by. And apparently he overheard her statement and he beckoned at her and he said, you follow me. And he took her into his little Quonset hut office and he sat her down in his guest chair and he looked at her and he said, I've been doing this more than a decade. And everybody, but everybody in the final analysis, no matter how much of a poser they are, when a gun is laid at their temple and it's their last second on earth, everybody begs for their life and you didn't and I want to know why and for the second time in as many minutes that girl because that's what she was at the time she was probably 17 the day she was telling me the story she was 12 when this happened ish maybe 11 maybe 13 about, around about 12 for the second time she looks at the guy and goes I'll say it again and she stood up leaned over his desk and goes I know you've got a gun in one of those filing cabinet drawers over there give it to me I'm not living like this anymore I'll shoot myself. And he looked at her, leaned back in his chair, rocked back and forth for a couple minutes, put his hands behind his head, sort of took stock of her. And then he goes, get out of here. You're free to go. He set her free. So she gets ready to leave my office. Very much unburdened now. Feels like a cloud or a storm has blown through my office and blown back out. Temperature starts to rise again. It had gotten really dark and cold when she was telling that story. And it wasn't just me. I, I know it wasn't just me. And she looks all like she's tap dancing on a cloud. She's like light as a feather. And she almost trips daintily over to the to the to the door to my office. And she stops for a second to to lean out and grab the door to close it behind her. And she's she hits the door jam. I go, Jenny. And she looks back at me and she goes, Yeah. And I go, You did good. And she goes, what? And I said, you did good. You survived a place nobody survives. Don't you ever forget that. You're a survivor. You did really, really good. And you're going to do much, much more good here on this planet, starting by working with our organization. And that girl, for that's all she really was on the inside. But isn't that, isn't that all we all are, no matter how many wrinkles we have on our face, no matter how many years we've blown out candles on our cake for? Underneath it all, we're just kids. 
she looked at me and she cracked the biggest flippin' smile I have ever seen, including out of my own child. She cracked a smile from ear to ear. Biggest smile I've ever seen before since I walked out that door. And then I promptly walked down the hall a few minutes later after she'd gone out for lunch and vomited. <laughs> for, I don't know how many minutes in the handicap stall. And, uh, and looked up and was like, why God, why? And I mean, it was so ironic because that month that we were doing that work, they were having a coup d'etat. And so you said the idea of a million man march or a billion man march, they were having a coup d'etat in Thailand. Why? Because they lost the right to elect freely and honestly the people who would elect them. Side mm -hmm. note for election integrity topics that are near and dear to my heart, you cannot lose the right to vote because once you lose the right to vote, the only option you have is to do what the Thai people do every six and a half years for the last hundred years. They have a coup d'etat. And so I would walk out from my high rise in Bangkok and that's what would meet me on the street. Tanks, bombs going off and people. And if you can see in the middle here, there's a bunch of green helmeted men and then there's a bunch of people around the outside. The green helmeted men are the law enforcement and military on the one side that don't want the coup and the people wanted the coup. And they were having this standoff for, for weeks and it finally came to a head when the farmers got on their farm equipment drove four, eight, 10 hours across the countryside and threatened to encircle Bangkok International Airport, cripple the country economically by grounding all flights and all of a sudden coup over people want. So my point in saying that is the convoys, I've been trying to do a convoy since I learned about it in 2014, um, because we think as non-military members that we don't have an ace up our sleeve, that we don't have forces that we can deploy. And that is very, very mistaken. We do have tanks. We do have tanks. And now we know this. They are called big rigs. They are called earth-moving caterpillar equipment. They are called every piece of large equipment that every farmer from the Central Valley here in Fresno all the way through to Mississippi owns. And if you get those guys in the mix, they can outrun the military. And we did it. I helped Canada with their convoy when the truckers said they wanted to do it. And I was the architect of the one here. And I was like, thank God, I've been talking about doing one of these for years and nobody could see the, the wisdom, but it's all about timing. But the other reason I wanted to show you that, that picture is because we think in America, we have a good showing when we're like, hey, we need to rally the moms and dads to go to the school board meeting so we don't have trannies teaching our three-year-olds how to like masturbate with a watermelon. Um, and, and you think, you know, that you got five or 10 or 15 or, or maybe even 55 parents there. And you're like, oh my gosh, we had an earth shattering number of people there. We made a difference. I'm not here to say you didn't make a difference or to rain on your parade, but that picture that I just showed you, that is what you aim for. You need shoulder to shoulder, not an inch between you, thousands of people at these board meetings. And you don't only pull from the orange unified school board. Okay. When we were fighting down the vaccine passport and I went in front of the board of supervisors and I said, folks, you won't need, what did I say? You won't need a Warsaw ghetto. I won't be able to leave my house. Nobody will service me. And unlike you all call this exactly what it is, this is a new Nazi program and you're the damn fourth Reich if you implement it. And they just laughed in my face. They had the LA Times do a hit piece on me. They're like, she's the Nazi for calling all of us Nazis. And they did a hit piece on me calling me a Nazi in the LA Times. And I thought, well, that didn't work very well. That's the other lesson here. You don't give up. You don't ever give up until you're six feet under and not even then.
If a 12-year-old can stand up to a firing squad and talk her way out of something, you have no excuse. I'm sorry. I'm just calling it like it is. So when I told the board that and they were like, oh, yeah, well, we're just going to continue to do the passport anyway, even though we're a largely conservative board. I'm like, no, you're not. You're bought and paid for, my friends. I said, okay, I'm going to find Vera Sharab. I am not the best mouthpiece for this. They're going to call me uh, a Nazi for calling out the real Nazis. I'll get a I'll get a Holocaust survivor to call to call out the Nazis because I double dog there dare them to call an actual Holocaust survivor a Nazi. And we made a TV commercial and I ran on the bottom border, just like Brad is right now with my information. The last four days that TV ad ran on Fox, on CNN, on MSNBC, where Vera Sharab was like, don't you dare do a passport program. Passports are how Hitler enslaved my people. And you don't want to be doing that in 2020. She called it like it was last few days of that commercial. It said, if you're on my side of the Mississippi, you get your butt down to the board meeting in Orange County at 9.30 Tuesday. Here's the address. I don't care what city or state you live in. We had people there from Arizona. We had people there from Idaho, from Texas, from San Francisco. You don't need to only be playing with the people in your pond. If you need to borrow your neighbors from down the city, down to the next county, down the next state, do it. There is solidity in numbers. There is success in numbers. And don't ever forget, we have the numbers on our side. All we need to do is to just stand up. And looking back 10 years later, I suddenly realized as I was writing this book, I realized why God had me in the middle of a coup d'etat, in the middle of jihadi territory, in the middle of brothel territory, because every single thing I learned to do there is what I have done here. None of which I repeat none of which involve lawsuits and legislation. Lawsuits and legislation are for when a moment of oppression happens. Your boss grabs your butt, that's a sexual harassment case. Your little black son is kicked out of sports because, you know, color of his skin, that's a discrimination case. Uh, They poison your groundwater, the company factory in your town does, call Aaron Brockovich. That's a lawsuit. At no point ever in Canada or here or anywhere in the world Did you open your history book in your high school years and have Mr. Smith say, now class, I want you to turn to page 84. And today we're going to learn how a really bright lawyer with a really great legal strategy filed one lawsuit and got rid of Hitler. Got, Got us out of a war. You don't get out of war, which is what this is, with a lawsuit or even many lawsuits or legislation. And I am not here to throw stone at CHD or AFLDS or PERC or any of the ones that are filing lawsuits. I work with them on it. I want them to continue to do it. Because it looks weird if you don't. But make no mistake, as a donor, it is an optic strategy. It is like when we go to war. We send our army and our navy. My dad was navy. My grandpa was navy standing on the deck of the USS West Virginia when it was bombed out from under him and my husband's U.S. Army tanker unit. I am not talking trash about our men. But 95% of the heavy lifting right now when we go to war is done by the special operatives. Because their kill ratio is 400 to 1 instead of 20 to 1. You don't go to war without your special forces. And you need to ask yourself, are we at war? What kind of war? Hello, fifth gen, information war. Why are we playing with third generation tactics? You don't win a gunfight with a knife, okay? We need to change our tactics, recognize we're living in a largely communist country, and quit freaking expecting the courts and the state capitals who are part of the problem to magically become part of the answer. Maybe in a blue state, we're going to win one out of 100 lawsuits. You don't want to quit filing them because it looks weak. But we're not filing them because we're going to win the war this way. You need to start doing the tactics that win. And those, my friends, those are the ones that I talk about 
in this book. There's a second book I'm going to write that will be coming out soon, but they're the name and shame tactics. They're the boots on the ground tactics. They're the million man marches. They're the convoys. They're the nationwide walkouts where you're crippling an economy. That is what get your gets your judges off the fence and into the game when they're like, oh, the whole country's on strike, including the supply chain, including the railroaders and the airplanes. And my wife's not going to have toilet paper this Christmas. Yeah, maybe I should actually decide that lawsuit on the on the vaccine mandate that's been sitting in my court for five weeks, right? That is why the courts finally got involved. Make no mistake, it wasn't the lawyers. The lawyers held the lawsuit. The lawsuit was going to be ignored. We did a nationwide walkout, November 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th, 2021. The first mandate case came midnight of that Friday of that week, and the timing was not a coincidence, okay? So again, you need to not just be standing up, you need to be making sure that the statistical analysis of what you're doing is working. And I know that the listeners on your show, Brad, are busy giving their time, their money, their resources to organizations that are standing up and they are personally standing up. But the other half of that equation that has been missing, and I would be in treason to my country right now if I didn't call it out like I'm seeing it. The other half of that equation is you are business people. You don't just write a check to your marketer and go, I hope he got me leads. And two weeks later, he brought you, you're a mortgage company. He brought you 10 phone numbers of homeless people that don't even own a home. How is that a convertible lead if you're going to try to refi their house? They don't own a house. You don't just keep paying for nothing. You get a lemon, walking it off the car lot, no AC in Vegas. You don't just go, well, I paid 60 grand. I already wrote the check. No big deal. You go back and you make them fix the AC or give you a whole new car. That is even more important. That rule, get what you're paying for, get your product. We're not talking about a dozen cracked eggs or a car that's not working or your business. We're talking about your children's lives. You have a duty to analyze if the organization you're giving time and money to is getting your children more free. And if they're not, you need to recalibrate and aim at the target that is getting the job done. And again, I'm not here to cast shade. Everybody's doing their part. I work with a lot of these entities all the time. But there are very few generals on this battlefield that are doing stuff that works. From my own record, and I'll just say it like it is, and I'm not, it, it's, an un, it's an unsustainable record in all likelihood. I've done no lawsuits, no legislative moves in the last three years, but I've done an initiative a month and they have been 100% effective to date. Amazing. To date. But they've been things like convoys, right? That finally got the blue states the rest of the way open, right? So again, that is why the book is called Just Stand Up. I firmly believe that if we just stand up, that is the meal ticket out of this crazy. It was for the, the girl I told you about on the Thai Burmese border. It has been the case over and over again. It was the way the, the Thai people got out of that coup d'etat. They didn't have tanks, but they had farm equipment. Um, and it's what we saw with the convoy. It's what we're seeing with the name and shame programs. You take your governor, you take your bad school board guy, you put him on blast, you put what he did wrong on blast, you make all of his crimes known, all of his bad plans known. And eventually good people like you, like me, like your listeners, Brad, go, what the heck is going on over there? I'm not going to stand for it. And you show up en masse. And when you do, you win. Because as Margaret Mead said, never doubt a small group of concerned citizens can change the world for indeed, they're the only ones who ever have. Yep, absolutely. And well said, Leah. I mean, I just, just your voice alone inspires action when people hear your words and then especially the stories and you literally have a blueprint for success if people are sick and tired of being sick and tired here's exactly what you do to move forward to jump in and i would hearken to say don't just get a copy for yourself buy a freaking case yeah. and spread it around 
if you are against the school board and you're sitting there going, what do I do? And you just heard this story, go buy a dozen books, give it to all of your friends, send it to them, and then have that book reading club moment and then organize. If you're part of the constitutional militias in the United States, which is amazing. Mm. America is the battleground for human freedom worldwide. And the fact that you have like a 17-year-old kid in Canada, Josh Alexander, saying, I'm going to help lead the youth movement, or a 23-year-old young man, Nathaniel Pawlowski, saying, I'm going to go around all of the province of Alberta and break bylaw after bylaw after bylaw and shove it in their face, even though he's up for one year in prison for reading a Bible 100 meters away from Drag Queen Storytime in Calgary. We cannot leave it to our youth to be the ones who stand up. And you've got strategies, you've got a battle plan, and you've got stories to inspire right here in your book, Lee, of Just Stands Up. So again, I encourage everybody, don't bother buying that bottle of wine this weekend. Put away your Costco membership for 60 ounces of Tito's vodka and get three of these, one for yourself, two for a friend. Send it out there, read it get informed, get involved. And if you're already involved, then you have a better blueprint for success here because you literally have the freaking Joan of Arc of our time who also just told you her track record of over 36 months, works out to be 39 months if you go back to March, 2020, of never having to file a lawsuit and actually getting mandates repealed and people in hot water and trouble, the right, wrong people, in hot water and trouble and literally turning back the tides of change for freedom that we're not done. It's going to get so much worse before it gets better, but we can temper how long it's going to be worse because we all need to come together and stand up. So at the bare minimum, buy three, go buy a case. If you can buy a case, send it out. All the attorneys who are watching this, you know, even Leighton Gray, Leighton, if you're watching this, we just did the show last week. He's filing the class action for jab and unjabbed in Canada. But again, that's part of the bullets in the gun that are being fired, as Lou was mentioning. But it all stops when we stand up. And you also need a plan. You need an organization, as Ricardo Bosi has said, you know, and Spec Ops as well, as you've alluded to. And Ricardo is former Spec Ops, 25 years of it in the military and the SAS. It'd be great for you to be with him on his show and, and you guys to chat as yeah. well. We're honored to put you together after this. And as he said, you know, you have to have an organization and a plan and the end state. The end state is freedom. Great. We have to work back from that and look at freedom. Then you have to have the organization and the plan. And then what's going to happen after they say, fine, that's it. Like they're right now rolling out in Canada, in Vancouver today, monkeypox is back. EG5 variant, which you turn around is 5G. 5G variant is back. Aurelia Hospital in Ontario has rolled out the vaccine mandates and the mask mandates again. They've done it in New York already. It's because not enough people stood up and they pushed back. And you have to steamroll them with sovereignty. That's the new tagline I came out with. And peacefully, we're talking peacefully, not throwing a rock, but you steamroll them with sovereignty with a billion standing up. So you got this plan for success, that a recipe that has worked across the board. So here it is again. You go to Lee Dundas dot com or freedom fire nation again been scrolling across the screen here she completely deserves all of this as a hero for humanity who's not backing down and we need more voices and bodies brought to the streets billions of them and we i will say i will say 
if your audience could buy the book that this week, uh, I'm trying to make uh, Amazon's bestseller list. So the more you do in one week, the more likely it is that you'll hit their top whatever in one of their categories. I, I don't know. I'm not an author. This is not something I've ever done before. But so they say. Um, but really, I just want to get the word out. And unlike a lot of the authors that used um, certain publishing houses, I my mother-in-law published my book. She owns printing presses. And uh, she's like, look, I know my son and you haven't had a page in three and a half years, I'll do it at my cost. So uh, b- pretty much everything that doesn't go to pay pay back my mother-in-law for her paper and ink uh, comes into my pocket. And you guys know what I do with that money. I use it to fight for freedom and to keep my own lights on so I can keep fighting for freedom and not have to go back to getting a regular old day job. So uh, I would be honored uh, for you to read the book. A, this is an information war and you don't win without knowing the information. So consider this, you're you're hereby anointed a warrior. You already are one. If you, if you didn't know it, you're the hero you've been waiting for. Um, and these are bullets in your gun. Bullets in your gun in modern, in modern parlance is information. And uh, you can't know how to fight a war if you don't have the information to do it. And that is what we talk about in that book. And uh, the money that you use to buy the book is going to, if I do say it myself, a heck of a good cause. Um, so, uh, so it's my honor to be able to impart that to you. Uh, I'd love to get these books moving. I've only done pre event sales at the Clay Clark events, but this is the week I'm launching it to the world. And uh, and I, I'm excited. I, I want to hear your feedback as well. Um, I'm going to have my website girl get a little feedback uh, link up there. So if you enjoyed the book, uh, you can give me your feedback. I think it. people who've read it said it's funny, which is not what you expect because I spend half the book talking about human trafficking. But my daughter, who's 18, and you know kids, they never give you praise. She literally said, I gave it to her walking into a nail appointment. And I go, oh, babe, I, I gave you a couple paragraphs in the acknowledgement where I, I thanked you. You should read that part. And she comes out an hour later. She goes, I go, what'd you think? She goes, oh, I didn't read the acknowledgement. I just started on chapter one, but you're really funny, mom. I was laughing so hard. The manicurist had to tell me to like put the book down because I was jiggling my fingers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, teens don't get praise. So uh, General yeah. Flynn, who wrote the foreword for it, called it a tour de force and uh, called called me a modern day Joan of Arc, as Brad uh, says. Really? Oh, so he's he's copying. He, what I he, said said, he said it first at the San Diego Clay Clark, I think. But uh, anyway, my best. ears are burning and my my brain is swelling, and I won't be able to get out my own door. But but I do want to say I, I tried to make it um, side splittingly funny in places to balance out. Uh, some of the some of the darker corners that we go into in the book. And I I think I hit the balance right if the teenagers like it and General Flynn likes it. So uh, if you if you get a copy, like I said, I'd be eternally grateful. And I'd love to if you know bring it to the next event I'm at. I'll sign it for free if you already bought it online or whatever. And uh, thanks again, Brad, for having me on today. It's always such a pleasure. You're most welcome. And I'll keep pushing it out every single day, a couple times a day. Let's just get it out there, everybody. And by the time you see this, so yeah, go go buy three, go buy a dozen, go buy a crate, go buy a box, go get it down there for any business owner in a firm, go watch it. Because listen, especially if you're a business owner, you're not going to have a business as soon as these come back. They're going to shut you down and they're going to take you out and they're going to tax you to death and then put you into the 15 minute concentration camp cities exactly. and kill you. That's right. That's the plan. Yeah, great. I mean, we have to see the smile on our face. Like, this is the craziness now. You have to have a little bit of levity to get through. Thank you so much, Lee. Appreciate it. And everybody, you know exactly what to do immediately after this. If you haven't now, order it. Uh, Even if you just order one copy, it helps the the movement, the cause, as well as to get it up there. We did it with Rich Men from Richmond last week. Number one on iTunes, a song they don't want to hear. Let's do it this week, this month with Just Stands Up for Lee Dundas. Absolutely, everybody. And steamroll that into sovereignty. 
and standing up with a billion people around the world on September 20th in every country marching for the children. God bless you all. God bless you, Lee, and thank you for God bless you for all of us. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the program, ladies and gentlemen. Please like, follow, subscribe, share this with nine friends and family. And of course, if you enjoy our blinged Buddha firing red pills from his nine mil, let us know.